Hello everyone, and thanks for joining me for Historical Insights. I'm your host, Jordan Collier. As June turned to July 1864, General Sherman was closer than ever to capturing the city of Atlanta, and Joseph E. Johnston was running out of chances to derail Sherman's momentum and forestall or break his advance. Horrendous Union casualties at Kennesaw Mountain late in June had failed to dislodge the Confederates from their lofty perches, guarding the approach to Marietta. And yet, after Major General Schofield crossed Ollie's Creek during that battle, thus threatening to cut off Johnston's line of retreat, Sherman, realizing the opportunity, threw forward a large force toward the Chattahoochee River. Johnston was compelled to either fight or give up Kennesaw to protect the railroad crossing of the Chattahoochee, his lifeline back to Atlanta. He chose the latter. Johnston fell back to a strong tête du pont, which is a heavily fortified entrenchment at the head of a bridge, protecting the bridge that carried the railroad across the Chattahoochee. In the 1860s, as we've seen before, railroads were by far the most efficient means to move large quantities of material over large distances, rivaled only by navigable rivers. In the absence of rivers, there is no other mode of transport to possibly compare. Where there were armies to the scale, as we see here in Georgia in the summer of 1864, with tens of thousands of men and thousands more service animals, a serviceable railroad is not a luxury, but a literal lifeline, the only thing standing in the way of starvation and defeat. And protecting access to the railroad for both Johnston and Sherman remained an omnipresent concern in their respective strategies. And so, as General Sherman pursued Johnston, he relied heavily on subordinates on the sides of the action, meaning up in North Alabama and Middle Tennessee, to ensure the cogs in his war machine continued to function smoothly, and that saucy rebels, particularly Nathan Bedford Forrest, stayed too busy with federal offensive maneuvers to contemplate a disruptive raid on the loosely guarded federal supply lines. The two railroads leading south from Nashville, one to Athens via Columbia and Pulaski, the other to Chattanooga via Stevenson, Alabama, were already pushed to their maximum carrying capacity, even focusing exclusively on carrying army supplies. Sherman had informed Lincoln of the situation back in May, quote, it is demonstrated that the railroad cannot supply the army and the people too. One or the other must quit, and the army don't intend to, unless Joe Johnston makes us." End quote. Additionally, the mass concentration of troops in Georgia for the Atlanta campaign left behind what was comparatively a skeleton crew to garrison Middle Tennessee and North Alabama. An active offensive strategy in North Alabama, keeping the rebels on their toes, enabled Sherman to pursue his strategic goals against Joe Johnston without unnecessary interruption, an interruption the Confederate commanders contemplated and prayed for. The federal officer left in charge of the District of North Alabama, Brigadier General Robert Granger, well understood his role in this grand scheme. 
riding on July 2nd from his headquarters at Decatur. Granger proudly reported back to Nashville, practically bragging, quote, It gives me pleasure to call the attention of the general commanding to the activity of the troops in my district in carrying out my aggressive policy for the protection of the railroad. The following just received from Colonel Anderson, 12th Indiana Cavalry. I have the guerrilla Parson Johnson and four of his men mortally wounded at Whitesburg, and shall have his entire gang tonight. The enemy has been attacked on the south side of the river seven times in the last two weeks, and always with success, damaging him more or less every time, with the loss of only one man killed and four wounded on our side. Their loss will reach fifty in killed, wounded, and prisoners. On the north side of the river, I have a scout out every other day to be absent two days. They have disposed of a number of guerrillas." Civil War commanders, as a general rule, overemphasized their successes and downplayed their losses in the official records. But it seems clear enough from this dispatch that Granger understood his duties well, vis-a-vis guarding the railroad and pursuing an active strategy against rebel partisans in North Alabama as a means to that end. Additionally, his reference to patrols north of the Tennessee River and disposing of guerrillas demonstrates that active surveillance, and what is essentially policing, was as much of a component of this strategy as openly skirmishing with rebels or passively garrisoning the railroad itself. Implementing this aggressive policy was apparently nerve-wracking enough for General Granger that, at times, he seems to have forgotten his manners. One SCC petitioner from Lawrence County named Charles Pitt recalled an unpleasant encounter he had with General Granger in the summer of 1864, when he went to headquarters at Decatur as a loyal citizen seeking protection from rebel reprisals. Mr. Pitt took two horses along with him to Decatur, fearing that if he left them at home unattended, the rebels would take them. Quoting here from Mr. Pitt, quote, When I got to Decatur with my horses, the guard took me to the provost's office, where I hitched the mares to a post in front of the office. The provost marshal received me kindly and treated me like a gentleman. While I was at the provost marshal's office, General Granger came to the office. He asked me who I was and where I came from. I told him that I lived in Lawrence County, and then he asked me what I came there for. I told him I came there to get protection as a loyal man. He asked me whose horses those were. I told him they were mine. He then asked me what I brought them there for. I told him to keep the rebels from getting them. He said that we might as well have them as the rebels, and told the provost marshal to take charge of them. I then asked him to give me a voucher for them. He said with an oath that he would not do it. He then left the office. I then asked the provost marshal why I could not get a voucher for them. He said the general acted very strange, and he could not account for it. About two weeks after this, I again asked General Granger for a voucher for my horses. He told me that he had no time to attend to it, and went off and left me. I was ignorant of the rules of the army, and the general treated me so roughly that I did not know what to do." Of course, as we've already seen, there was an insatiable need to bring in livestock and service animals for army use, and a person's loyalty, genuine as it may or may not have been, was likely far below what Granger deemed a priority consideration in the matter. 
Still, Mr. Pitt recalled even a decade later how roughly he was treated when General Granger swore at him, refusing to give him a voucher for his horses. Such an interaction bears witness to the level of tension and high stakes present within military operations in the valley at this time. With Forrest and Roddy still lurking just off stage, and rebel guerrillas an ever-present nuisance, there was little time to attend to trivialities like vouchers. There was an aggressive policy to pursue. A very revealing report from Brigadier General John Starkweather, commanding the federal post at Pulaski, Tennessee, shows the variety of strategic functions that scouting expeditions could serve. On July 7, 1864, Starkweather gave a progress report of sorts to Decatur and copied to Nashville, stating, quote, My scouts, who have been absent so long, have just got in from Corinth, Bethel, etc. Colonel William A. Johnson, commanding at Corinth, has three regiments and one battalion cavalry there. Forrest, with his main force, is at Tupelo. Roddy is with him. Roddy was to take command at Corinth, and Johnson was to return up the valley near Tuscumbia. State Guard at Savannah had a skirmish with Bert Hayes' guerrillas. Five companies of Roddy's command at or near Tuscumbia. Our gunboats were up as high as Waterloo last week. Enemy have flatboats at Eastport, mouth of Bear Creek. Enemies say that Nashville is the point they intend to aim for. Have taken four large droves of cattle out of the country and am continually collecting them. My scouts were captured by 25 of Forest Command, nine miles southwest of Lawrenceburg today. Have sent out a scout after the enemy. End quote. In addition to policing guerrilla activity, as we saw from Granger, scouting expeditions gave Union commanders valuable reconnaissance, like insight into rebel positions, strength, and intended movements, as well as, apparently, the Federal Army's own movements, such as gunboat expeditions and skirmishes around Savannah. It was not a task without risk, of course. As he mentions, some of his scouts were captured by 25 Confederates nine miles southwest of Lawrenceburg. This, coupled with the reference to the state guards skirmishing with Bert Hayes' guerrillas, shows that Granger's aggressive policy notwithstanding, homegrown Confederate partisans especially, still operated with considerable efficacy in the territory north of the Tennessee River, which was nominally under federal control. These guerrillas, therefore, would probably be known today in the parlance of the Iraq War as insurgents. They were small bands of armed men native to the occupied community who could travel more or less inconspicuously, targeting isolated outfits of uniformed soldiers and preying upon civilians on the wrong side with campaigns of terror, violence, and intimidation. The State Guard that Starkweather mentions refers to the 2nd Tennessee Mounted Infantry, Thomas Jefferson's Cypress Regiment. Seipert recalled in his memoir how, by this time in the summer of 1864, guerrilla warfare had intensified. Quote, Throughout the month of June 1864 and the first days of July, we, the 2nd Tennessee U.S. Volunteers stationed at Clifton on the Tennessee River, were greatly harassed by squads of rebels and guerrillas. End quote. It is curious, then, to realize that 
within the larger framework of operations to such a massive scale as the Atlanta campaign existed smaller clashes between native southerners operating largely within their own communities playing out as a subplot of the larger drama. Seibert, a native of Wayne County, an officer in a Union regiment made up of other loyal local Southerners, faced off against another local paramilitary band led by Bert Hayes, who was quite literally his neighbor, and their interpersonal micro-conflict itself constitutes one piece of a larger macro-conflict, evidenced by its mention in Starkweather's report to Nashville. It was a pixel in a larger picture that extended outward to encompass nothing less than the very fate of the rebellion itself. Bert Hayes, by the way, was a notoriously violent rebel guerrilla, infamous in the Shoals region, who Wade Pruitt writes about extensively in Booger Saga. I can find very little primary source historical evidence about him, save for very sparse mentions in the official records and one mention in the SCC petition of William Simmons of Waterloo. Pruitt recalls the legend and lore surrounding Hayes and his misdeeds during the war, which convey to the historian, regardless of their validity, the larger-than-life reputation Hayes created for himself. In other words, the fact that so many infamous misdeeds were attributed to him, regardless of whether he committed them all, conveys the fact that in the popular imagination, he was the kind of person who might just as well have been responsible. According to Pruitt, no one knows exactly how Bert Hayes was killed after the war, though the tales agree it was a violent fate, as a comeuppance for all his many misdeeds. Pruitt concluded his chapter on Hayes by saying, quote, How or by whom or when Bert Hayes is killed is uncertain, but that he was a good riddance is agreed by all. End quote. Another manifestation of the Federal Army's aggressive policy at this time came under the direction of Major General Lovell H. Russo, left in command at Nashville in the absence of General Thomas. Russo, as you may remember, had been advocating for a raid deep into rebel territory to strike the arsenal at Selma, Alabama. Both he and Sherman believed taking the ball into the Confederates' court, so to speak, would be the most effective means to ensure that Union-held Middle Tennessee remained unthreatened, especially with only a skeleton crew garrison remaining as the bulk of the army bore down upon Atlanta. As we saw last time, along with his approval of the plan, Sherman gave detailed instructions on how the raid should be carried out. All that remained was Sherman's signal that the time was right to launch. On July 2nd, 1864, Sherman gave the word. Quote, now is the time for the raid to Opelika. Telegraph me whether you go yourself or who will command. Forrest is in Mississippi, and Roddy has also gone there. All other rebel cavalry is here. End quote. Sherman clearly saw an opportunity, as intelligence indicated a gap in rebel cavalry activity in North Alabama, meaning Russo would meet with little opposition as he moved south across the mountains into the Coosa River Valley. Russo, naturally, did not wish to leave the matter in the hands of a subordinate and wrote to Sherman the next day, quote, I shall go in person, leave General R.S. Granger to take care of the district. A little preparation will be required. I will announce to you when I am ready to go. End quote. 
Three days passed before Sherman, understandably getting impatient, wrote again to Russo, quote, That cavalry expedition must now be off, and must proceed with the utmost energy and confidence. Everything here is favorable, and I have official information that General A.J. Smith is out from Memphis with force enough to give Forrest full occupation. Expeditions inland are also out from Vicksburg, and Baton Rouge, as well as against Mobile. If managed with secrecy and rapidity, the expedition cannot fail of success and will accomplish much good. End quote. The conditions were favorable, for now, with the rebel cavalry occupied elsewhere. But this was only temporary, and there was no time to lose dallying. Sherman wrote later that same day, eagerly and, one imagines, becoming short-tempered in the July heat, quote, Has that expedition started? End quote. Russo responded at 10 o'clock the next morning, July 7th, quote, Have had a good deal of trouble in organizing an effective force. Shall go to Decatur tomorrow, and leave Decatur on the 9th at daylight. End quote. His excuse is certainly understandable, as available spare forces, especially cavalry, who were not already occupied, were so rare as to be practically non-existent. Sherman accepted Rousseau's timeline of departure in 48 hours' time. He wrote a detailed play-by-play, -play, which highlights the depth of Sherman's genius for strategy, anticipating contingencies, and the psychology of his opponent, and his amazing ability to juggle multiple scenes of focus. Even as he is orchestrating a massive assault on the most crucial railroad junction of the South, Atlanta, he can still direct the subplots with an equal amount of attentiveness and competency, grounded keenly in a sense for geography. Writing from near Chattahoochee at 9 p.m. on July 7th, Sherman said, quote, I have no new instructions or information to convey to you, but expect you to leave Decatur on the 9th. If Roddy be about Tuscumbia, you might send a small infantry force down to Waterloo to amuse him by threatening to cross and burn the Bear Creek Bridge, eight miles back from Eastport, and about five miles east of Iuka. You may give out that you are going to Selma, but be sure to go to Opelika and break up the railroad between it and Montgomery. There is but a single road there which unites the Mississippi Road with the Alabama Roads. I am convinced General A.J. Smith will give full enjoyment to Forrest, and I will keep Johnston fully employed, and Major General Canby will look out for the Mobile Garrison. When you reach the road, do your work well. Burn the ties in piles, heat the iron in the middle, and when red-hot, let the men pull the ends so as to give a twist to the rails. If simply bent, the rails may be used, but if they are twisted or wrenched, they cannot be used again. In returning, you should take the back track, and, if pursued, turn for me or for Rome or Kingston or Alatoona. Be sure to take no wagons, but pack some lead horses. Travel early and late in the day, but rest at midday and midnight. Spare your horses for the first week, and keep the horses ready for the return trip. I think the only force in your route is pillows about Oxford or Jacksonville or Gadsden. We are down to the Chattahoochee and will soon be across. All is well with us. End quote. I won't go into great detail on Russo's raid. In short, it was regarded at the time and by historians since as a great success. Setting out from Decatur, slightly behind schedule on July 10th, Russo headed southeast with 2,700 cavalry from Iowa, Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee regiments. 
They moved by way of Somerville to Bluntsville, Aniana, and Asheville, crossing the Coosa River at the Ten Islands on July 13th. There, they met with a small Confederate force under command of Brigadier General James H. Clanton, which was quickly, handily defeated. On the 14th, they destroyed an iron furnace at Ohatchee in Calhoun County. On July 15th, they reached Talladega and destroyed a variety of public property, war materiel, and two weapons factories. On the 16th, they crossed the Tallapoosa River, and on the 17th, they reached their intended target, the Montgomery and West Point Railroad, when the flower of their task reached the peak of its destructive bloom. Four detachments spread out and struck various targets along the railroad between Narasolga and Opelika, including the East Alabama Mail College, which would become Auburn University. Confederate resistance was paltry, and Rousseau's men operated effectively unopposed for the next 36 hours, rendering some 30 miles of track unusable. Rousseau reached Marietta, Georgia on July 22nd, reportedly bringing some 400 mules and 300 horses into federal lines with him as spoils of war. Sherman recalled in his memoirs what he dubbed a great story from Rousseau, which he told during their first in-person meeting after the raid. Here I quote from Sherman, quote, Rousseau said he was far down in Alabama, below Talladega, one hot, dusty day, when the blue clothing of his men was gray with dust. He had halted his column along a road, and he, in person with his staff, had gone to the house of a planter, who met him kindly on the front porch. He asked for water, which was brought, and as the party sat on the porch in conversation, he saw, in a stable yard across the road, quite a number of good mules. He remarked to the planter, "'My good sir, I fear I must take some of your mules.' The planter remonstrated, saying he had already contributed liberally to the good cause, that it was only last week he had given to General Roddy ten mules. Rousseau replied, "'Well, in this war you should be at least neutral. That is, you should be as liberal to us as to Roddy, a rebel cavalry general. Well, ain't you on our side?' No, said Rousseau, I am General Rousseau, and all these men you see are Yanks. Great God, is it possible? Are these Yanks? Who ever supposed they would come away down here in Alabama? Of course, Rousseau took his ten mules. End quote. Rousseau's raid met with great acclaim and notoriety in the press. The newspaper, Vernon County Censor, which is admittedly an ironic name for a newspaper, of Viroqua, Wisconsin, printed a day-by-day -day itinerary of the expedition's movements from an obliging witness, Oscar Reese, attached as a clerk to the headquarters of Colonel Patrick, 5th Iowa Cavalry. The paper somewhat exaggerated some of the federal successes, reporting, for example, 800 horses and mules captured, though Sherman himself only reported 700 to Washington. The British press even seems to have latched on to an erroneous detail, apparently first published in the New York World, that Rousseau had captured Montgomery. Ultimately, it's a testament to the effectiveness of his expedition, not only that the northern and international press lauded his accomplishment, even a bit beyond what was justified, but that Sherman himself praised him for it. Sherman's praise was not lightly won, nor awarded without great merit. 
when General Thomas informed him on the afternoon of July 19th that a captured Atlanta paper reported Russo having taken Opelika, it met with great enthusiasm from Sherman, quote, good for Russo, move for Atlanta at daylight, end quote. There was even an exclamation mark used. With Russo and his cavalry back in Georgia, the Confederates whipped in Alabama and Atlanta within his sight, things certainly warranted enthusiasm from Sherman's perspective. And yet, as so often is the case in life, great victories are seldom won without great sacrifices, as Sherman was soon to be made painfully and personally aware. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll explore stunning and dramatic developments during a one-week period in the midst of July that will leave a highly respected officer dead, another one fired, and stakes higher than ever. Please stay with us. The same day that Russo arrived triumphantly in Marietta, July 22, 1864, the Union Army suffered a devastating loss and a personal blow to Sherman himself. Major General James McPherson, commanding the Army of the Tennessee and a close friend to Generals Sherman and Grant, rode up unbeknownst upon a Confederate ambuscade and was shot and killed while attempting to flee. McPherson had been alongside Sherman throughout some of the defining moments of the war in the Western theater, from Shiloh to Vicksburg and Dalton. And Grant credited McPherson alongside Sherman, quote, as the men to whom above all others I feel indebted for whatever I have had of success, end quote. Sherman, when informing Major General Thomas of McPherson's death two days later on July 24th, wrote an elegiac tribute to McPherson, the emotional depth of which is seldom seen in the official records. Quote, General McPherson fell in battle, booted and spurred, as the gallant knight and gentleman should wish. Not his the loss, but the country's, and the army will mourn his death and cherish his memory, as that of one who, though comparatively young, had risen by his merit and ability to the command of one of the best armies which the nation had called into existence to vindicate its honor and integrity. History tells us of but few who so blended the grace and gentleness of the friend with the dignity, courage, faith, and manliness of the soldier. His public enemies, even the men who directed the fatal shot, ne'er spoke or wrote of him without expressions of marked respect. Those whom he commanded loved him even to idolatry, and I, his associate and commander, fail in words adequate to express my opinion of his great worth. End quote. And yet, war does not stop to mourn loss, even one so great as a respected major general. And other critical developments on the Confederate side at this time required a new height of focus, for the stakes were higher than ever, and the cards had just been reshuffled in the deck. At the same moment the crescendo was rising, with Russo wreaking havoc at Opelika and Sherman's successful crossing of the Chattahoochee, the Confederate administration at Richmond finally lost patience with General Joseph E. Johnston. As we saw, Sherman's advance toward the Chattahoochee around Johnston's flank at Kennesaw compelled Johnston to fall back to the river crossing or risk being cut off from Atlanta altogether. 
General Johnston informed Confederate President Davis of this situation on July 7th. In response, Davis tempered his criticism with 19th century gentleman speak, quote, The announcement that your army has fallen back to the Chattahoochee renders me more apprehensive for the future, end quote. Davis then forecasted all the havoc that could possibly result if Johnston were to fall back across the Chattahoochee. He concludes with a rebuke, letting Johnston know just what high hopes he carries on his shoulders and the sacrifices made for his benefit. Quote, At this distance, I cannot judge of your condition or the best method of averting calamity. Hopeful of results in northern Georgia, other places have been stripped to reinforce your army until we are unable to make further additions and are dependent on your success. End quote. Johnston had no shortage of excuses, valid ones too, for why he now found himself backed into a corner, with Atlanta hanging in the balance. Quote, Our falling back was slow. Every change of position has been reported to General Bragg. We have been forced back by the operations of a siege, which the enemy's extreme caution and greatly superior numbers have made me unable to prevent. I have found no opportunity for battle except by attacking entrenchments." He then repeated his now familiar and tired refrain that leaving cavalry in Mississippi was misdirected energy and they should instead be redeployed into North Georgia to sever Sherman's lifeline, the railroad. Quote, it is believed here that there are 16,000 cavalry for the defense of Mississippi and Alabama, and, therefore, that the enemy cannot make a detachment able to invade that department. Might not 4,000 of this cavalry prevent the danger by breaking up the railroad between the enemy and Dalton, thus compelling Sherman to withdraw? End quote. Johnston's suggestion did not meet with a sympathetic audience at Richmond. On July 11th, Davis made inquiries to Johnston's adjutant general, Samuel Cooper, as to the force Johnston had whenever he assumed command, how many troops he had been sent as reinforcements, and the strength of his effective command. And to Johnston himself, De Davis delivered a seething reply to his suggestion, dripping with acerbic attitude. Quote, you know what force you left in Alabama and Mississippi, and what part of it has, since you left that department, been transferred to reinforce you in Georgia? You were, therefore, in condition to judge the value of the belief that there are now for the defenses of those states 16,000 cavalry, and of the conclusion drawn from that belief. The proposition to send 4,000 cavalry from that department to break up the railroad between the enemy and Dalton suggests the inquiry. Why not so employ those already sent to you from that department, or others of equal number, for the proposed operation, the importance of which has long been recognized, and the immediate execution of which has become a necessity? If it be practicable for distant cavalry, it must be more so for that which is near, and former experiences have taught you the difference there would be in time, which is now of such pressing importance." will write to you and give information in relation to the condition of General S.D. Lee's department, which I perceive you cannot possess. End quote. 
in other words, if I may paraphrase, if you want to launch an expedition, do it. Don't ask me. Haven't we already sent you enough? Don't you know what you have available? Why are you asking about forces from other departments? If it's so important, do it now with what you've already been given. Johnston's goose was very nearly cooked. Davis would have probably been even more scathing if he had known that on the night of July 9th, Johnston gave confidential orders to begin moving his corps to the south side of the Chattahoochee because Sherman had already crossed on the 8th. Amusingly, in finding possible places to ford the Chattahoochee, Sherman's men apparently had unlikely allies in the form of Confederate pickets turned swimming buddies looking to beat the heat by taking a dip in the river. According to General Field Orders No. 3 from General Johnston, dated July 11th, quote, "...intercourse between the pickets of the enemy and our own is strictly and positively prohibited. General Johnston appeals to the good sense of the army to put an end to a practice so dangerous. Yesterday, the enemy had a great interest in finding the fords in the Chattahoochee and easily attained their object, the pickets by mutual agreement bathing in the river together. The engineers of the enemy most probably mingle with the bathers. End quote. Of course, by this point, preventing some recreational summertime activity with the enemy was far too little too late to turn back Sherman's advance or save Johnston's reputation. President Davis had sent General Braxton Bragg down from Virginia by rail to take an honest assessment of the state of affairs in Johnston's army. What he found there afforded little optimism to the situation. On July 13th, as he first arrived at Atlanta, Bragg reported the consensus there was that Johnston would soon abandon the city altogether. Without sugarcoating, he wrote to Davis, quote, Our army is sadly depleted, and now reports 10,000 less than the return of 10th June. I find but little encouraging, end quote. The tone of Confederate correspondence at this time grows noticeably pessimistic and desperate. The Georgia representative to the Confederate Congress, Benjamin Harvey Hill, wrote to Johnston directly on July 14th, referencing his request for more cavalry from the West. Quote, you must do the work with your present force. For God's sake, do it. End quote. The same day, General Johnston's preeminent subordinate general, John Bell Hood, wrote a damning letter to General Bragg. It was as much a job application as it was a denunciation of Johnston's failure. Quote, During the campaign from Dalton to the Chattahoochee River, it is natural to suppose that we have had several chances to strike the enemy a decisive blow. We have failed to take advantage of such opportunities and find our army south of the Chattahoochee very much decreased in strength. Our loss cannot be less than 20,000 without having fought a decisive battle. Our present position is a very difficult one, and we should not, under any circumstances, allow the enemy to gain possession of Atlanta, and deem it excessively important, should we find the enemy intends establishing the Chattahoochee as their line, that we should attack him, even if we should have to recross the river to do so. I have, General, so often urged that we should force the enemy to give us battle as to almost be regarded reckless by the officers in high rank in this army, since their views have been so directly opposite. 
I regard it as a great misfortune to our country that we failed to give battle to the enemy many miles north of our present position. Please say to the President that I shall continue to do my duty cheerfully and faithfully and strive to do what I think is best for our country as my constant prayer is our success. End quote. After meeting with Johnston in person, General Bragg reported back to Richmond that, although it seemed like Johnston was growing more willing to fight, quote, I cannot learn that he has any more plan for the future than he has had in the past. End quote. The next day, July 16th, Davis offered Johnston one final chance to show that he was the right man for the job and wouldn't give up Atlanta without a fight. Davis said, quote, I wish to hear from you as to present situation and your plan of operations so specifically as will enable me to anticipate events, end quote. Johnston's response to this sealed his fate, quote, As the enemy has double our number, we must be on the defensive. My plan of operations must therefore depend upon that of the enemy, end quote. Johnston's timidity could no longer be ignored. He was fired. The next day, Friday, July 17, 1864, Johnston received his orders with a sharp rebuke of his failures. Quote, I am directed by the Secretary of War to inform you that, as you have failed to arrest the advance of the enemy to the vicinity of Atlanta, far in the interior of Georgia, and express no confidence that you can defeat or repel him, you are hereby relieved from the command of the Army of Department of Tennessee, which you will immediately turn over to General Hood. End quote. And to General Hood, the Secretary of War offered him a cautious exhortation that, in time, would prove to be fatefully prophetic. Quote, you are charged with a great trust. You will, I know, test to the utmost your capacities to discharge it. Be wary, no less than bold. God be with you. End quote. Hood, for his part, at least feigned reluctance to accept the appointment at such a critical time, stating that he didn't think the commander should be changed until after the fate of Atlanta was determined. President Davis responded candidly, quote, A change of commanders under existing circumstances was regarded as so objectionable that I only accepted it as the alternative of continuing in a policy which had proved so disastrous. Reluctance to make the change induced me to send a telegram of inquiry to the commanding general on the 16th instant. His reply but confirmed previous apprehensions. The order has been executed, and I cannot suspend it without making the case worse than it was before the order was issued. End quote. As he relinquished command, Johnston offered some parting words regarding his replacement, which are just about as sassy as 19th century military commanders get. Quote, Confident language by a military commander is not usually regarded as evidence of competency. End quote. And General Hood, for his part, despite his confident language and overtures to Richmond, extolling his own willingness to fight, was ironically, tactically, in virtually the same position as Johnston. Only four days after his appointment, Hood issued orders to the Atlanta garrison to begin making preparations that very night for the possible evacuation of Atlanta, quote, without saying anything about it, end quote. The immediate consequence, in Sherman's mind at least, was that the timbre of the conflict was about to ramp up to previously unseen levels of desperation and aggression from his opponent. For Hood was a fighting man. 
Sherman recalled in his memoirs, quote, About 10 a.m. of that day, July 18th, one of General Thomas's staff officers brought me a citizen, one of our spies, who had just come out of Atlanta, and had brought a newspaper of the same day, or the day before, containing Johnston's order relinquishing the command of Confederate forces in Atlanta, and Hood's order assuming the command. I immediately inquired of General Schofield, who was his classmate at West Point, about Hood, as to his general character, etc., and learned that he was bold even to rashness, and courageous in the extreme. I inferred that the change of commanders meant fight. Notice of this important change was at once sent to all parts of the army, and every division commander was cautioned to always be prepared for battle in any shape. This was just what we wanted, vis-a-vis -vis to fight in open ground, on anything like equal terms, instead of being forced to run up against prepared entrenchments. But, at the same time, the enemy, having Atlanta behind him, could choose the time and place of attack, and could at pleasure mass a superior force upon our weakest points. Therefore, we had to be constantly ready for sallies. End quote. For better or worse, the die had now been cast, and the fate of the rebellion in the West was now in the hands of John Bell Hood. He will, in six months' time, have pushed his army to the very brink of extinction, strewn across a frozen and bloody landscape, with the dying embers of the Confederacy scattering in the wind along with them. Of course, no one at the time could have possibly foreseen that outcome. Back in North Alabama, the shuffle in the Confederate command did not immediately lead to a substantial change in the Federal Army's status quo. General Granger's aggressive policy against rebel groups lurking along the Federal lines prompted an expedition from Decatur on July 25th to disperse their encampments located along the railroad near Cortland in Lawrence County. Led by Colonel William Grower of the 17th New York Infantry, a force of approximately 1,100 infantry and cavalry from the 25th Indiana, 32nd Wisconsin, 18th Michigan, and 3rd Tennessee Cavalry, along with a section of artillery from the 1st Ohio Battery, departed Decatur at 3 p.m., heading west on the Cortland Road. They marched approximately nine miles that afternoon and went into camp on Fox Creek, the next morning, Colonel Grower had trees felled at the Fox Creek campsite, he says, to give the impression that their camp was to be a long-term entrenchment, and disguise their true intended destination. He also sent out scouting parties in all directions to reconnoiter the positions of the rebel groups scattered in the area, which were reported five miles away at Mallard Creek, along with Colonel Patterson's main force at Pond Spring. Colonel Grower left camp during the night on July 26th, splitting his force into two wings, moving parallel with the railroad toward Cortland. Upon arriving at Pond Spring at 4 o'clock a.m., Colonel Grower found the Confederate force had withdrawn ahead of his advance and fallen back upon Cortland. The Union force reached Cortland at 9 o'clock a.m. To quote Colonel Grower, quote, my advance guard of infantry encountered the enemy's picket at the village, who fell back before them, firing from the streets and houses upon my men. 
I found the main force of the enemy drawn up in line in a strong position on Big Nat's Creek, one half mile beyond the town, where he had the benefit of some old breastworks and were some six hundred strong, composed, as I ascertained afterward, of a portion of Patterson's own regiment, Colonel Nixon's regiment, and Farrell's battery and Stuart's battalion. Uh, Colonel Carter was also expected to join him with two hundred men. As I advanced to the outskirts of the town, I was opened on by a sharp fire of musketry and two pieces of artillery. I at once deployed my forces, holding the 25th Indiana in reserve, and deploying the 18th Michigan and 32nd Wisconsin as skirmishers, and opened on the earthworks with my 12-pounders. In ten minutes after these dispositions were made, I ordered the whole line forward, when the rebels were discovered retreating toward the Tuscumbia Road. Some time necessarily elapsed before the troops could cross the ford, which was somewhat difficult, so that the enemy got considerable start. I at once ordered the cavalry under Lieutenant Colonel Minnis to pursue the enemy and capture all he could of them. Lieutenant Colonel Minnis reported that he pursued the enemy four miles, but owing to the jaded condition of his horses, he was unable to come up with them, even with some of his best horses in advance. The road was strewn with blankets, haversacks, canteens, etc., and a number of small arms were found on the field and in the road taken by the flying enemy. End quote. The whole action had lasted about half an hour. Major Edwin M. Hubbard of the 18th Michigan gives a wonderfully detailed description of the action at Cortland on the morning of July 27, 1864, with remarkable precision that one does not often encounter in the official records. Quote, as we entered Cortland, I was ordered to reinforce the skirmish line and sent forward Company G, Lieutenant Clark, commanding. As we passed through the town, it appearing that our skirmish line was briskly engaged, I was ordered to deploy my battalion as skirmishers and move through a cornfield in front of us and draw the enemy's fire, which I proceeded to do. As we came out of the corn, we were received with a pretty hot fire from the enemy, who appeared to be posted on the opposite bank of the creek, which ran obliquely across the left of my line of skirmishers. I moved my skirmishers forward under cover of the railroad, which ran between me and the enemy parallel with their line, and afforded good cover. Here we received a sharp and continuous fire from the enemy. I soon discovered a movement which I thought to be an attempt to get around our right into what appeared to be an earthwork on my right, and the right of my line being thrown pretty far forward, I retired to the cover of the fence of the cornfield and sent my adjutant to report to Colonel Grower. As we fell back, the enemy opened on us with a howitzer. I then received orders to deploy my two reserve companies and move forward to the earthwork on my right, which I did. But our artillery opened on them at this time, when their fire ceased, and they left in haste. This ended the affair, so far as the infantry was concerned. I then received orders to move my battalion across the creek in column by company, which I did, when we formed line, stacked arms, and rested for the day. After retiring from the railroad bank, and while lying under cover of the fence, I had one man killed, which was the only casualty in my command. End quote. 
Hubbard's precision in describing his location relative to the railroad and the creek actually enables a modern observer to pinpoint the location of the skirmishing to within a few yards, considering that the railroad and the creek are in the same positions where they were 160 years ago. I'll attach a map of this expedition with images of the skirmish in the cornfield in the description to this episode. One witness to the action at Cortland on July 27th was the SCC claimant James Pierce. According to his petition, quote, When Colonel Grower's command came to Cortland in July 1864, a good many of them stopped around my house. They had a fight near my house. It was a cavalry command. Some of their horses were put in a livery staple. They went to the crib and carried the corn off in baskets to the livery stable. They took about twenty bushels. My horse was in my stable, and a soldier came and broke out the door, and the horse was turned out. He, after the fight, caught the horse and rode him off. The soldiers went to my garden and dug my potatoes. They took about fifty bushels of potatoes. They also took out of my corn patch about an acre or two all my roasting ears." Portland was the hotbed of Southern Claims Commission claimants in Lawrence County. Fully one-third of the 24 approved claimants resided at Cortland. Many of them were enslaved during the war. One remarkable claimant was a woman named Delia Logwood. She claimed an exorbitant amount, one of the largest in North Alabama, just under $6,000. Her story is simply extraordinary. The commissioners of claims summarized her biography, quote, She was formerly a slave, was manumitted by her master's will, and given a sum of money to be paid to her when she was married. She was married at the age of 21. Her husband was a slave, and the property of his half-brother, William Logwood. The claimant purchased him after her marriage for $535. Instances are frequent of wives purchased with husbands' money, but not so frequent are the instances of men and husbands made out of chattels by the wife's money. End quote. Delia herself mentions a stunning detail that the commissioners neglect to mention. Quote, I was made free by the will of my master and father, Matt Clay of Virginia, when I was 18 years of age, and an amount of money put in the hands of Edgar Swoop as my guardian to be given me when I married. I married Daniel Logwood when I was 21 years of age. My husband was a slave when I married him and belonged to his half-brother William Logwood, from whom I purchased him for $500. End quote. This is a truly precious glimpse into the experience of enslavement, especially regarding relationships among interracial kindred, the power dynamics and interpersonal relationships that must have existed in such complex familial structures truly boggles the imagination. Delia mentions here a man with the surname Swoop. A witness in the claim of Edgar Watkins provides a clarification regarding that name. Quote, My name is Coleman Watkins, but I have been called Coleman Swoop, which used to be the common way when we changed masters. End quote. It is remarkable to realize the all-pervasive ways in which the identities of enslaved people were entangled with their status as chattel even after emancipation bearing the badge of slavery in their very names. The Southern Claims documents are some of the most revealing contemporary accounts of the experience of enslavement in the Tennessee Valley. 
By this time, in the summer of 1864, so-called colored infantry regiments of black soldiers, most of whom were native to areas of Tennessee and North Alabama that had been under Union occupation, were left the task of manning the garrisons and crude blockhouses, guarding key points on the railroads south from Nashville. This was in no small part due to the overtly racist consensus in the Federal Officer Corps that black soldiers were not equal to white soldiers in the task of fighting on the front lines. As we've seen before, they were routinely relegated to ancillary roles and positions in the background, on the sidelines of the action, as in this instance, left behind guarding the railroad. The time was rapidly approaching, however, when instances of valor on the part of black servicemen in the Tennessee Valley would amply demonstrate their ability to fight as the equal of any white soldier. On the day that General Johnston was relieved of command of Confederate forces around Atlanta, the officer in command of the Georgia Reserve Corps, Howell Cobb, wrote a letter to the Confederate Secretary of War voicing support for the action Johnston had unsuccessfully advocated, namely a raid on Federal supply lines conducted by Forrest and his cavalry. Quote, there is a conviction upon my mind so strong and overwhelming that I cannot throw it off, that the defense of Atlanta and Georgia and the certain defeat and destruction of Sherman's army are involved in some movement to be made by Forrest, if possible, or some other cavalry on Sherman's line of communication. Unless it is done, I see no end to the slow process of Sherman's advance through Georgia. If his communication was cut for ten days, his army would be destroyed, and Georgia, as well as Alabama and Mississippi, saved, and Tennessee recovered. End quote. Hmm. While this is certainly wildly optimistic, and we can say, given the hindsight of history, hopelessly naive, to think that Sherman could be thwarted and Tennessee could be recovered by a single raid on the railroad, his statement shows us two things. First, as the situation for the Confederacy grew increasingly bleak in the second half of 1864, Confederate leaders and diehards responded with a proportional degree of self-deluding optimism in their rhetoric, belying the gravity of the situation they faced. This could be an expression of the well-known sunk-cost fallacy. And second, Observers on both sides apprehended that the most serious challenge to federal supremacy in Georgia would come not as a direct challenge one-on-one -on, -one on the battlefield, but by a backdoor offensive far to the rear with nimble blitzkrieg cavalry bands, preferably led by the very devil Forrest, who had already bested the Union Army time and again. At a time when reasons for optimism for the rebellion began to wane, larger-than-life figures like Forrest proportionally filled the spotlight. And very soon, as we'll see next time, he will demonstrate that faith in him was not altogether unjustified in a stunning and infamous upset close to home right here in the Shoals. Thank you so much for joining me.